Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and psychic medium Stephanie Burke. We are here to talk with you about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. The gang is all here tonight because we've got a, a big show for you. We're going to have uh, a guest who I, I got a feeling already that this is going to be an instant classic episode because we're going to be delving into one of the most famous UFO cases, but something that we haven't covered here on the show in years past. We're going to be talking about the Pascagoula incident, which we'll get into all the details with one of the two people that were abducted as part of that case, Calvin Parker, the only surviving person who was abducted from that case. Not that the other person died as a result of the abduction. He died many years later, but Calvin Parker will be sharing his story with us coming up a little bit later on in the show. Uh, We also want to say hi to our intern, Kylie, who we have... Actually, we put her to work tonight. She's over there in the news booth, and she's uh, she's going to be running the Twitter during the show because we're we're missing that that Twitter aspect. You know, we do a great job in the chat room on YouTube. Well, we try to anyway. Right. We don't we don't necessarily do a great job, but is that not working? That microphone you have to like get really close to. But I am. Oh, this is horrible. Yeah, it's it's. Why it's, would anybody want me to sit at this one? It sounds way better in my ears than does it does it? in yours. Trust sounds me. Like- junk yeah it's uh one of the things that'll be switched around when the new boards come in which should be very soon it's exciting we have all the all the equipment is here we just have to wait for the people who have to come and train us on the new system but once we get that we'll have all new stuff all new things for us to to mess up maybe then this uh this jack on the board will stop (laughs) cutting out on me and sticking my headphones and have it come out only one ear, which is going on right now, and I can't talk when I can only hear myself in one ear. Because well, that's me. I'm sitting here. I'm like, I can't hear anything. Is my mic up? Is it not working? What's going on? I think this is mine. Oh, oh, there we go. There okay. you go. So you just gotta sweet talk it. You have to gently massage it and get it in just <laughs> find just the right spot to get what you want from it. Don't look at Are me like that. Air? I spend a lot of lonely I time was here. Make a Robert Kraft mention, but I spend a lot of lonely time here by myself. Are so. we on air or are we on YouTube? No, we're on the air. Oh, so. then, all right. I'm yeah. going to stay quiet in my corner. But, uh, yeah, so we, like, like I said, we do a great job in the chat room. Well, I think the people who show up every week and hang out in the chat room and go back and forth, they're the ones who do a great job. We just kind of interject ourselves now and then. But we just were kind of missing the interaction on Twitter. We've tried in the past with trying to, you know, live tweet the show to some degree. And Matt does a, a great job with feeding stuff out to it all the time. But, you know, this way here, Kylie can hear some of the good stuff that's coming up in the conversation and just kind of send some tweets out there and, and let people know with the link back to the show, to the YouTube channel, so that people can jump in and check it out. Basically, I'm, I'm trying to tell her how to do it because I didn't give her very good instructions. So You're usually really good at instructions. Yeah, but I was kind of, I kind of ran in here fast tonight. Right. Yeah, yeah she, she, even she's giving me the kind of like, eh. So it's all right. She's a millennial. She'll figure out Twitter. It's good. Oh, don't call her a millennial. She's, it's not a bad thing. She's way better than a millennial. Listen, we didn't have any of this stuff when we grew up. Like, I didn't have the internet. So <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I didn't. You're not that old. How did you not have? The I didn't internet? have the internet. You it didn't wasn't have the thing. internet, but the internet existed. No, 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 no. Like nobody had computers. It wasn't a thing. No way is that true. Not every household had a computer. No, not even schools did at that time. 
We didn't get schools until I was. We've had uh, smartphones for most of your life. No, we haven't. I remember days of bag phones, and like the giant ones in the car. I don't know. I I swear. To I you. think you're recalling past lives or something no, here. Not. I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. You should I, probably do that. It's a good idea. <laughs> in 19, I'm sitting in very really close proximity. <clears throat> in 1996. Okay. Like what? I know you probably don't want to reveal your age on the air, but in 1996, like what school level would you have been in? Like elementary school, middle school? Elementary. So in elementary school. So in 1996, I got the internet in my house, and I was one of the last people to get the internet in my house. We didn't have it. Nope. I'm telling you. This is this is amazing to me. Actually, it wasn't even 96. It was 97. 96 was the first time I ever used the internet. I remember like Windows 98, like Windows 97, stuff like that. But um, yeah, no. I remember days of, of cell phones not being mobile. I don't know. I, I promise I'm, you. I'm sticking to my recalling past lives idea. I'm not that young, you know. Which I had a great conversation about past lives uh, on Midnight in the Desert this past week. Yeah. If you haven't, I sent you the... Uh, That's right. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Hope, I mean, if Keith and Michelle are listening, I, I didn't send the file to somebody else. No. <laughs> but I... No. I, no. I kind of wanted to get your take a little bit so that you know we could maybe have them come on the show. Uh, Barry Eaton was a fantastic guest talking about past lives and, and the realm between this world and the next and uh, really, really interesting stuff. And like I said, I hate to poach the great guests that Michelle brings on to that show. I hate to poach them to bring them on to Spooky South Coast, but sometimes I know that it would just be a great discussion here on our show. Right. Well, past lives are fascinating. So, and there's so many different takes on it and so many different ways to do it. Um, and to, I mean, you have people's outlooks on it, you know, as well as like reincarnation, reincarnation. Um, so it gets, it gets, it's, a, it's a giant rabbit hole. That's the best way to put it. There's also too. <laughs> The difference with our show and with Midnight in the Desert is, you know, we're taking breaks and, and uh, you know, it's a three-hour show as opposed to our show is a two-hour show. So, mm-hmm. And plus, I don't really – I'm not afraid to go down really, really weird rabbit holes on Spooky South Coast. So, right. We've done it so many times. Yeah. We could we could take that discussion in a variety of we're different ways. We're those people that have those guests on and we're just like, let's see how it goes. Let's ride it out. So – There's shows that, you know, sometimes we, we book them and we say – I don't know how this is going to go, Yep. but let's just see what happens. Like that guy we brought in last week, Andrew Lake. <laughs> like, we, No, he's, I'm just kidding. He's a little sketchy. It was so great to have him back. I was kind of uh, sad that he came back on when I wasn't here. Well, he's. I told him, you know, the door is open any Saturday night if he's right. got nothing going on and he wants to come in and hang out and kind of co-host, you know, and of course, we'll, we'll have him on to talk about his own adventures too, but... I just think he brings in a lot of insight. And it was great last week to hear Kimberly Dawn talking about some of these cases that she's dealt with with these darker entities and have Andy here, yep. who, as you know, went through a case like that. Right. That, you know, <coughs> kind of almost took him out of the game completely. I mean, it was it was it's, it takes a lot to rattle that guy. And so for him to have a, a case like that where he thought about walking away completely as a result of what was going on. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if he... I don't know if he did a, a, a – I think he was a little bit reserved in how much he was describing to everybody last week about the effect that it had on him. I mean, as much as he was saying about it, I think he was still holding back to some degree because he didn't kind of want to make things about him. But it was bad. You mm-hmm. know, Stephanie, you were you were the one that was talking to him pretty much daily about this. Right. Like, it, it had a very profound effect on him. Mm-hmm. 
Andy just has so many fascinating stories anyways. His research is unbelievable. So, Well, I don't want to announce anything yet because uh, we're still well, in the works of well, now you have finalizing to. everything. But if there's anybody, we've talked about this before, if there's anybody that needs to have a podcast, it's Andrew Lake. Correct. And so we're working on making that happen. So, Well, I kind of knew that, but... Right, but I haven't really right. told the you audience. Right, haven't teased it to anybody yet. So, but uh, we talked last week, and uh, and he he kind of has an idea of what he wants to do, and basically he's going to craft everything. He's going to dig into his files and put together the the actual podcast itself. We're just going to help him get it out there to the world, and people will have the chance to listen to Andy tell stories as only Andy can. And if you are a subscriber to Midnight in the Desert, or even if you're not, it's worth the five dollars just to sign up. And to go back and listen to when Andy was on the night before Halloween sharing Rhode Island stories, man. I, and as I've said before, I've heard Andy tell these stories probably at least a dozen times. Because these are stories that he would share in our stage show, An Evening of Ghost Stories New England Legends. And so we would have rehearsals. And, <coughs> sorry. and I remember when... He was, like, developing the stories. Things were very rough in the beginning, and we went over these stories again and again and again. And to hear how he pretty much came out of the gate with these stories the way that they were. If anything, they've maybe been trimmed a little bit for time or compressed a little bit for time. But other than that, like, the details are still what he came in with the very first time. So now I'm excited to see what it could be like to hear him tell these stories completely unfiltered, completely... Without time constraint. And he can tell them the way that he wants to tell them in a way that I think the audience will respond very well to. Because a lot of these, if you listen to a lot of these these podcasts that, that share ghost stories or share legends or things like that, some of them take it to a dramatic effect. You know, I think Jeff Belanger's New England Legends podcast does a great job of following in the, the podcast tradition of telling the story and maybe adding in a little music and a little sound effects and everything, but he doesn't take it to a level of cheesy. Some people that do these podcasts take it to the level of cheesy. You know, I, I don't want that. I don't want somebody that's trying to scare me. I want somebody that's telling me a story in a way that might be creepy. That's why, like, Jeff's podcast is great. The Strange and Unusual podcast is great at that. And I think Andy's going to take those type of podcasts to a whole new level. So it's not going to be the, you know, you're not going to hear blood-curdling scream sound effects. He's just going to give it to you raw, and he's going to give it to you real. And I'm very excited to see where it goes. So He kind of reminds me of, like, a New England Dark Waters. Right. Except the thing about Dark Waters is, and this is no disrespect to him. Nope. He's collecting other people's stories. Exactly. But the, the way that he delivers the stories make you feel like you are right there. And, like, Andy's stories are his own research, which makes it a little bit more personal, or things that have actually happened to him or people that he knows personally. So that's the difference between them. But the way that they both deliver stories is so fascinating and so captivating that it really just sucks you right in. And, uh, by the way, did you give Bardella a hello? Because I, he's... I did, actually. You did? I did. Okay. In the chat room? I did. But you didn't give him one on the air. Well, shouldn't it be all hail, Bart? She said it. There you go. You got her. You got her to say it. So you just earned some Bart coins, I think. Did I? 
What, what are BART coins? So you use them in the BART store. Oh, there's a BART store? Oh, yeah. I'm a little behind. I haven't been on the, the BART oh, yeah. show you, in you can a get while. All, you can get all kinds of uh, BART stuff. So it's uh, I, I recommend going to uh, kingdomofniradio.com, and you can find some of his stuff there. It's, right. it's actually it's the only Kingdom of Nye radio that there is. Okay. It's the only one. That's all I've heard of. There's there's no other Kingdom of Nye radio show at all anymore. So I feel like this might be going down a different path. Mm, I kind of know I'm, what you're talking I'm, about. I'm just saying. Um, so it's uh, there we got our our plugs in. Now somebody can make a video about how uh, I take payment from Bardo for plugging him. Bart coins, well, they're not real. I said it first, so that's okay. They can be mad at me first. So uh, tonight we're going to be talking with Calvin Parker and, and Moniz. You have the opportunity to kind of strike up this relationship. You're the one that was able to, to get Calvin Parker to come on the show. Well, I met him about 25 years ago, and I've been following his case since the early 80s when I read about it. And, uh, it, it always fascinated me, mainly because it was another case that had another person with him. You know, a lot of people, they're all about the individual abduction. Now, not to say that those aren't real or, you know, people aren't having those experiences, but when you have more than one person that's involved, it takes the psychological aspect out of it, pretty much. I mean, there's still the psychological thing that happens to the people, but it's not one person making a hallucination when you have two people. So um, I found the case extremely fascinating. And um, they weren't your typical, you know, grays that were involved. They, they were there, but they were more than just one type, which is what made the case really interesting to me. There's... Uh, some of these, you know, abduction cases, when you hear about them, uh, you hear about the periphery. And we'll get into this with yeah. Calvin, too. But you hear about the, the media that comes and covers it and the way that it's treated in town and the way that the townspeople kind of will look down on this and don't want to really be associated with this. And, and that's not the case with this incident, as we'll find out tonight. This is something that people in town took very seriously. Yeah. And uh, and what what's really interesting about this too is that it's something that has persisted. I mean, as much as it, when it happened, it had this initial buzz about it, but it's something that never really went away. But what is interesting about this is, as you said, there were two gentlemen involved in this, and Calvin Parker wasn't the one that was talking about it for forty years. Correct. You know this this is something that he's only recently. Uh, really come out, and, and of course he has this new book out. It's a big one, so it's a little hard for me to pick up with one hand. Pascagoula, The Closest <laughs> Encounter, My Story, Calvin Parker. So this this book has kind of uh, forced Calvin to come out and share his story. He was always very, very, very reluctant. Um, Hickson was the one that was really... Um, We'll say the vocal one of the group. Now, the other thing that we'll probably find out is there there were other witnesses to what happened from a different vantage point. You know, so it's not like just Calvin and um, Hickson. You know, just had the story by themselves. There were where the, where it happened. There's plenty of mm-hmm. like it's a port. So you and know. and I think uh, you know today 
uh, you know, right now there's a lot of buzz around the History Channel show about Project Blue Book. Yes. And I think that uh, the audience will be interesting to find that, uh, you know, Heineck was actually involved directly with this case. Right. This is after Blue Book closed, but, mm-hmm. yeah, he was involved with the case, correct. So we'll uh, we'll talk with Calvin about that. We'll find out about his experiences with Dr. Heineck and, uh, and what he thought about it, because in reading about this case, it seems like, you know, everybody kind of took them at face value with a lot of this stuff. Uh, there were there were polygraphs administered. There were people that were um, civic leaders, we'll say, uh, people involved in the police department, people involved in, in town government. There were people that were behind what happened, people that were supportive of what happened. So uh, I think this is going to be a, a very, very interesting show. I think we might change the minds of people who kind of crap all over the idea of ufo abductions and i think that even people who do believe in them and people who have looked into them on their own we're going to bring some new information to light as well and basically what's going to happen is stephanie won't be able to sleep tonight yep because this is this this story is going to be one of those ones listen we used to have a bumper that we used to play that said turn on all the lights lock the doors and pull down the shades and I would highly recommend that for tonight's show. And the reason why we would say that is you lock the doors so they can't come in, but they will anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the point. You turn on all the lights so that they'll know you're awake and they won't bother you, but they will anyway. Yep. And you pull down the shades so that you can't see them coming, but it doesn't matter because they're coming anyway. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. This should be a... Uh, this should definitely be a very... I could just go home in a half hour. It's safer there. But at home, that's where they get you. Or they could get us all sitting right here. Um, it's a little harder right here. This I case mean, is Kylie's a... here. She would make sure that that doesn't happen. Bear in mind that this case happened aliens? while fishing. <laughs> yes. <Yeah, this, laughs> we're, not, we're not talking about a 3 a.m. abduction story here either. <coughs> you know, as Moniz says... <laughs> There's a lot of these that happen in broad daylight. broad daylight. This wasn't broad daylight, but it was, you know, not that late yeah. at night either. Yeah, just after the sun went down. So we're talking about uh, we're talking about something that, you know, you wouldn't normally think of this as as a typical abduction story, but then again, as Moniz has told us, that, what we think of is more. Yeah, what we think of as typical abduction story is not really the typical story. Correct. So I think what we will do is we will. Get as deep into this as we can, but we'll also try to we'll try to keep in mind the fact that for a lot of folks, this might be the first time they're hearing about the Pascagoula UFO incident. I'd only heard about it, kind of bandied about as one of the cases. And what I knew about it is, I knew that it was two people involved. I knew that it happened while they were fishing, and I knew that it was kind of what introduced the idea of. The probing aliens into the, I don't want to say the lexicon, but kind of into the into the catalog of experiences that people have with abductions. And that was kind of really my only knowledge base about this case. And in reading and, and preparing for the show and, and finding out more and more of this, I said, this has everything that I would say that I'd be looking for in an abduction case to find it believable. They went to the authorities. Yeah. They spoke to the media. 
They were willing to undergo polygraph tests. They were willing to be scrutinized. They stood up to the scrutiny. They were scrutinized. And yes, we had one person that made a little cottage industry for himself out of the story. But then we have the other person who will be our guest tonight who shied away from all of that. Who didn't want to talk about this and actually felt like it was detrimental to the life he was trying to live to be associated with the story for a long, long time. And those, to me, were always kind of what I was looking for. You know, it's not the story of somebody who who has this experience and then can't wait to go on TV and talk about it, or the person who has this experience and is immediately writing a book about it. You know, we're talking about somebody who stayed quiet about this for longer than I've been alive. You call him a reluctant participant. And so we'll find out about why that was, why it took so long for that story to come about. And we'll we'll bring our guest on, Calvin Parker, right now. Good evening, Calvin. How are you? I'm great. How are y'all today? We are spooktacular, as we like to say here. And uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, thank you for uh, agreeing to come on and share your story. As I as I was saying, I don't know if you heard how much of it that you heard, but this is one of those stories that I only knew kind of a little bit of the periphery about when we started doing this show and I was looking into some of these different abduction cases. But the more I found out about your story and the more I looked into your book and all of this, and I have to say this has kind of everything that I was looking for to have a believable, you know, something that I would look at at face value and say, I honestly think that this happened to those two gentlemen. And we were mentioning that it took you so long to to come out and, and tell your story we're going to get into all of it. We're going to go back to the very beginning and kind of explain to everybody what happened. But the, the first question that I'll ask you is, is why now are you sharing this story with people after being quiet about it for so long? Well, it's kind of like I told everybody. Everybody has an expiration date on their head. And I felt like I owed it. I never talked about it to my family or friends or anything that asked me, and I just avoid them conversation so uh we were at a wake one day of a neighbor and i signed a register and everybody started recognizing my name and they wanted to talk about it and i didn't think that was a place to do it and i got to thinking i said well this is 45 years later you know i i really need to tell everybody but i didn't want to I didn't know how to write a book. I was don't have much of an education, but my wife kind of pushed it, and Philip Mantle, the producer, uh, the publisher of my book, started pushing a little bit. He says, well, get it and write it. Put it in writing, and then that, that's your legacy. They can't nobody come up and change it, and that's the way that it is. So I agreed to do that, and just sat there and started putting it on paper. And that's where the book came around. And now, if somebody asks about it, all I do is say, well, read the book. I don't want to talk about it. Understandable. Right. Uh, and we're talking about something that happened to you when you were when you were 19 years old, right? Yes, I'm 19 years old, 1973. And so I that's, guess that's a, as good a place to start as any. Let's, let's talk about what was going on in, in your life at that time and, and what led to this night. Well, actually, I was working in the oil field, 
and putting in about 16 hours a day. And I wanted a little, I was engaged to get married, so I wanted a little more stable job. And I called up a friend of mine, or he really wasn't a friend, but a, a friend of my father's, and asked him about coming to work. And he was working in a shipyard here in Pasadena, Mississippi. So uh, he hired me, and actually that was the day before I went. I went down on October the 10th, and we went fishing. And the first, we worked, got off work, and went fishing. And the first day I was there, this is when all this happened. So I pretty much lost the job, got an examination and all that on that day. But at work, when we got off, uh, Charlie said, why don't we go fishing? I know a good spot. We'll kind of cool down. Because here on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, it was probably 75 or 80 degrees that day. So I agreed to go. We drove down to a place called the Old Grain Elevator in Shaw Peter Shipyard. And we got out of the car and we walked down to the river, which it took about 15 minutes to get there because of all the debris where the floodwaters had washed in it. And then they'd go out, they'd leave trash and all on the bank. So we sat down, and I was looking across the uh, river. I was on the East River, so I was looking across the river, and there was no ship over there. And I was thinking to myself, now this thing's made out of steel. How does a steel ship float in water? And that's where my mind was. I, I really wasn't thinking of anything at that time. And then I noticed some blue hazy lights coming across the water from behind us. And uh, it got my attention because we was actually on private property, and I was afraid that was going to get us for trespassing. Right. You so, see these blue lights, and you assume it's it's the police. That, yes, sir. I assumed it was the police there at the time. So we stood up. Both of us seen them across flashing across the water about this time. We stood up, turned around, and by the time we got turned around, it was a bright light. I've never seen a light that bright in my whole life. It was almost blinded. And probably to judge the distance, my car was about 100 yards behind us. So this craft had landed close to my car. And uh, we seen three robotic-looking creatures that come out of the crowd, but they was almost to us by the time we could make it out because of our eyes get used to the light. But two of them got a hold of Charlie. One of them got a hold of myself. I was hunting somewhere to run, but there wasn't nowhere. There was water on the left and the right and in front of me, and it had a lot of debris in it. But when this creature got me by the arm, and I, I'm calling it a robot. I don't know if that's what it was or not. I felt an injection go into my arm. Well, that immediately settled me down. And later on, the puncture mark, they thought they figured uh, at the hospital that it was probably some kind of injection they gave us a shot. So two of them got a hold of Charlie. One of them got a hold of myself. And they floated us up about a foot and a half, two foot off the ground. And they levitated us and headed toward the ship. 
Now, I couldn't move anything but my eyes or my head. All I could do was roll my head. But when we was going in the ship, I was thinking, and I don't know why this was so weird, but I was thinking, now, where's all these lights coming from? But they was illuminating out the walls. That's the one thing that I noticed that stuck with me all these years. There wasn't no light fixtures or anything. The light was just coming out of the walls. So... When we got to the door, of course, I lost track of Charlie. I don't know which direction he went or anything. They made a left turn and then a right turn. And they put me in on an examination table. And and that's the only thing I know to call it. At about a 45-degree angle. Immediately when I was laid on this table, there's something come out of the ceiling about the size of a deck of cards. And it rotated around my head, and it was click. And I could hear four clicks. So, you know, did that at the front of my head and the side of my head and the back of my head and on my other side. And then this thing went straight up back up into the ceiling. Well, this big, ugly creature, and by this time my eyes had focused enough to call him that, uh, he backed up out of the way, and when he did, a smaller-looking uh, and I called it a female. I don't know why. I don't. I don't know if it was or not. But it was a smaller creature that come out. And she, she had fingers, and her two middle fingers was a little longer than the rest of her hand. And she reached, peeked me on the cheek there a couple of times, then reached her two fingers down in my throat. And that little thing that hangs down back there, she come up behind it. And I started strangling. I couldn't catch my breath, so I panicked pretty hard. And that's when uh, I was looking at her in the face, and I never seen her lips move. But that's when she said, we're not going to harm you. And she pulled her fingers out. And then that big, ugly creature come over and grabbed me by the arm again, and I felt another injection. So I feel like they was giving me uh, something to calm me down. And he, she kind of backed up out of the way there, and he got us and took us back out to the river, set me down at about the same spot that we was in, but my arms were stretched out in front of us. I was kind of paralyzed. And that's when I heard the guy that was with me. He was on the ground, and he said, Calvin, Calvin, you okay, son? And automatically, you know, we just turned to look to see what happened. And the crap, the bright light went off and blue hazy lights come out again. And, uh, this thing just picked up off the ground a little ways, shot up into the air like, just like the speed of light. It, you know, you couldn't even see it disappearing. So we sat on the pier and talked for a minute after this because the danger was over. And I told him, I said, Charlie, you know, there's no reason to tell nobody about this. I just got this job. They're going to think we idiots if we tell somebody. Uh, let's just keep this quiet, get up in the morning and go to work. Well, that's a good idea. That's what he said. But apparently he didn't abide by what he said. So on the way home, we got back to my, we walked back to the car and I noticed on my car, the windows on the passenger side that was facing the crowd. 
It just shattered in place. But they were still intact in there until we opened the doors. So uh, we got in there, and I like never did get the car cranked. It must have took 15 minutes. And another thing that puzzled me was uh, if you crank on a car that long, normally the battery would go down, but this battery was good. I mean, you couldn't even tell a difference in it. So we left there, and there was a little store. Uh, while we was going back to the apartment, she said, pull over. We got to tell somebody. But the deal is, in Mississippi, there was blue laws back then. And the blue laws is where you can't stay open. The store can't stay open past a certain time. So he got out. He tried to call Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi. So he uh, got a hold of somebody there, and they told him, we don't deal with stuff like this anymore. So don't uh, call you. Do call your local authorities, the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. So he went back and come back to the car. We scratched on the floorboard to find another dime. Because this was 73. They weren't going to sell phones or social media or anything. Right. So we strictly had a telephone, a pay telephone there. He got a dime and he called. And I asked him not to, but he still called anyway. And I heard him say he wanted to speak to uh, somebody of authority. And he said, you got to promise me you won't laugh, but I want to tell you something. And when he got back to the car, he said, of course they laughed. But he told them, and they told us to wait in the car. And it wasn't for just a minute. Two patrol cars pulled up. They walked up to the car, and they looked in the window. Asked me for some ID and to step out. So they did a uh, field sobriety test right there where you stand on one leg, bend your head back, touch your nose, and jump up and down. So if, if I did that right now, I would fail it for sure. But anyhow, they led us back in the car, told us to follow to the uh, shop department, and we did. And uh, they give us a uh, alcohol test where you blow on something. And they figured out, you know, we hadn't been drinking or anything. So then they separated us and put us in different rooms. And they interrogated Charlie in one room. And they interrogated myself in another room. And then they put us in a room together. And little did we know there was a tape recorder in this room. And that's where they what they call the secret tape, it came out. And uh, they had recorded this, that, and we didn't know about it, and I didn't find out about it until years later. So uh, the sheriff came in, and he walked up, he said, y'all just go on home, and I'll talk to y'all tomorrow. So that's what we did. We went home, and I was renting a room for Charlie at the time. So when we got to the house, I I was worried about uh, contamination of some kind or, or a virus or something spreading it. And the reason for that, because these Gemini flies, I noticed when they brought them back, they would uh, quarantine them for seven days and check them for radiation. 
So I was kind of worried about that. I didn't want to expose anybody else. I went into the bathroom, took all my clothes off, put them in a paper bag, shoes and all, and I poured bleach over my head because I remembered my mother used to uh, make a spade in bleach if we got poison ivy or something. Mm-hmm. And she'd always say it to kill germs. So I poured a gallon of bleach on my head and washed it off, put on some more clothes. And then the next morning when I got up, I carried that bag of clothes out and I threw it in the dumpster. When we got up, went on to work. When we got to work, I noticed I hadn't been up in a day or two. But I did notice there was more traffic in the uh, yard than what it normally was. So we brassed in, and when we got to a workstation, they sent someone out from the station to get us. And uh, I remember getting on my hands and knees out in the parking lot going up because I had a feeling that they knew what happened. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want this to go public. I felt like it was a personal matter and I shouldn't go public with it. And at least until I figured out the reason. So that when they got us to the office, they said, we can't conduct business normal here. The phones are ringing off the wall. Uh, somebody's going to have to give a press release, so we're going to call our attorney. Y'all tell him what happened, and he'll work up a press release. See, at this time, they kind of knew what happened, but they had nobody talk to us about it. How they found out, I don't know, because everybody swore they wasn't going to tell. But it was reporters from everywhere. Their phones would ring. They couldn't conduct this. So we got to our attorney. We sat down with him and, and explained to him what happened. And that's when uh, he went out and gave a press release. And I talked to him about maybe going to the hospital. So by this time, the sheriff's department had a patrol officer there. And they loaded us up in a the car. They took us to the hospital and got an examination. And that's when they noticed two punch marks on my arm where they had uh, given us some kind of injection. And they they released us there and said it was safe for us to go somewhere. And then somebody had the idea that we might have a lot of radiation on us. So they immediately turned their lights on on the patrol car, went to Keesler Air Force Base. And when we got there, they they just run us through the gate. They didn't even stop us. So... We went to the back of the base, and there was uh, about five or six guys in hazmat suits. And they had something in their hand, I forget what they call it, to check us for radiation. And I heard one of them say, all clear. Then they said, they want to talk to y'all in the uh, conference room. Go straight down this hall. So they escorted us down the hall, and it was full of uh, military personnel. It was full of uh, your local authorities like the mayors of each of these little towns and uh, police departments and all this. And they was pretty nice. They just asked us to tell a story. Reluctantly, I didn't want to tell it, but I was afraid not to then. So 
they documented all this and put it in And then they stood up and told us to go. And they carried us back to the shipyard. And when we got to the shipyard, they said there's somebody that needs to talk to y'all and meet with y'all. And it was Dr. John Allen Hynek. Now, this was getting on late. And Dr. Harder from the University of California. Now, Hynek was for Project Blue Book. And they set us in there, interrogated us. I wouldn't call it interrogation. Question us for a few minutes. And then they said, we'll see y'all tomorrow. So we got up the next morning. I was really planning on going home. But we got up the next morning, and when we got back to the shipyard, Heineken went out to the site where this happened. He had talked to the sheriff department and all. So they pulled us in, and Dr. Harder gave us an examination. That's when he noticed the punch marks. It didn't. He tried to hypnotize. He tried to hypnotize me, but uh, unsuccessfully, you know, it didn't happen that time. And then uh, Heineck did a pretty intent. He just wanted answers. He was nice about it, but he was thorough about it. So I sat down and got interrogated for it. And then I don't know how long that lasts, probably an hour or so, two. And he he said, well, y'all can go. But they had flew down on their own dime, I mean. They paid for their own trip and all when they heard about this. It was there just right away, just immediately when they heard. So uh, I went back, loaded up my car, and I went back to Laurel, Mississippi, with the intentions of not talking about this. But the press had got a hold of it, and uh, I knew I was going to have to tell them something back home so when, when I got home I just told him I was alright and we'd talk about it later and that was 45 years to the day almost that the book come out because I didn't want to talk about it and I felt like I didn't need to talk about it and for one thing you know it wouldn't do no good then you'd be ridiculed and uh I also. It was just. Is it true too that you were worried that if you talked about it, that the the beings that took you would would have an issue with that? That they didn't. I thought I read somewhere that uh, that um, you basically told Charlie Hickson, you know, they don't want us to talk about it. Oh, I did, and I just, and they didn't tell me that. They just, uh, I just felt that way for some reason, mm-hmm. and. But I knew I had been in 40, 45 years later, I had been through a stroke, two open heart surgeries, and I got an expiration date set on my head. And I felt like I owed it to my family, my friends, and the people on the Mississippi Gulf Coast anyhow. I owed them some kind of story because I never did talk about it. And even here today, I have people coming up saying I've been to conferences and things, you know. And uh, I think during this time I might have made one or two just rode around with Charlie, you know. Hmm. But uh, eventually I hadn't 
than to know them. I didn't want to go, you know, I, I just felt like I didn't need to talk about it. Well, it, it seems like there's a, well, first of all, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, from your experience, and, and we have a, a news break coming up in about five minutes, but then after that, we'll have a whole other hour to be able to really delve into this. But it seems like uh, on the surface, you know, you were the one that was kind of the, uh, you know, you kind of had some I, some wherewithal to know what it was that happened to you and to kind of think about all the different things that you should do as a, as a follow-up after that. Did you know? Was was it something that you and Charlie talked about between the two of you? So, between the two of you, did you talk about having been abducted by aliens? Is that what you were saying to each other at the time, or is that something that came about later? No, uh, actually, when I sat down with Charlie after this happened, what we really talked about was we didn't need to talk about this, but we knew something had happened to us, and we didn't know. I didn't. Uh, I don't know if he did or not, but I didn't know if it was aliens or what it was. There for a while, I thought it could have been an experiment from one of these shipyards that built all these uh, destroyer ships and all. I said, well, there's two old rednecks out drinking, and they got their toys, and they run around just having fun with us. But later on, I figured out the technology wasn't there. They didn't really, that wasn't the case. And But deep in my heart, I felt like it was something wrong. Uh, uh, probably from another planet or something like that. But when this happened, I never heard of uh, UFOs. I didn't know what a UFO was. I didn't know what aliens were. And up until I did the book, I never looked at pictures of them. But I was trying to find what mine looked like. And mine's totally different from the ones with the big eyes and look like lizards and grasshoppers and stuff. Mine was more human-looking than that. So more human-looking, like as in they look like they could be people, or more human-looking as in they just had more humanistic features than what we're used to? They had more, more humanistic features than that. So you knew at the time uh, that you weren't dealing with actual people. Right. And you, you could tell. And one thing that bothered me was uh, when she telecommunicated and told me, you know, her lips never moved. But it was just like she was saying it herself. We're not going to harm you. But, you know, I didn't believe that at all then. And I still don't. Well, as I mentioned, we're, we're coming up on the news break, so we're, we're going to have to go and take that. But when we come back on the other side, I want to talk with you more about not only that experience, but also what happened in the years after, because... Now, while you thought it was best to stay quiet about this, Charlie Hickson, who was there with you the night that it happened, he did not stay quiet about this. He actually kind of went on the uh, on the circuit kind of uh, talking about this. And so I want to kind of look at the dichotomy of what Charlie was doing over the years with this story as opposed to what you were doing. And, and I want to talk more about uh, just some of the impact that this had on the area. I want to talk about the way that the community responded to you when it happened because to me, that's part of the most fascinating part about this case is that you didn't come back there and, and you weren't looked at the other folks as being these two weirdos that were claiming to be abducted by aliens. People were listening to what it was that you had to say and, and people were supporting you and standing behind you. So we'll get into all of that and more uh, with our guest, Calvin Parker. If you want to pick up his book, 
and I'm going to pick it up right now and put it up to the camera. Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, My Story by Calvin Parker. You can get that on Amazon or wherever you get books. Uh, we'll have links up. Matt's linking everything up there, too, so you can pick that up if you want to be able to get that for yourself. And uh, during the course of the break, if you have any questions that you want to send to us, you can do so. Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. You can also send them to us on Twitter. Use the hashtag SpookyLive or directly send them to us at SpookyFC. We've got Kylie monitoring the Twitter. She'll let us know if there's any questions that pop up on there. And uh, also you can jump into the chat room at SpookySouthCoast.com uh, on the video feed, Spooky TV. You can jump in the chat room there and interact with everybody and ask your questions there. And also you can call in 508 996 877-996-1420. Those are the numbers to call in. But again, we'll take a break for the news and we'll come back with more of Calvin Parker. First-hand experiences with a UFO abduction, talking about the famous Pascagoula UFO incident. More Spooky South Coast coming up in just a few moments. Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in paranormal talk entertainment. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. Back, our number two of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, psychic medium Stephanie Burke, and intern Kylie. She's over there monitoring the chat room and dealing with Bart L. Yes. Which we didn't warn her about. We did not. Going into this. Kylie, you want to you pop on for a minute and talk to us? Pull, just pull that microphone down there. And there you go. So, uh, so this is your this is your first time being on the radio. Yes, it is. All right. I always like when I can put somebody on the radio for the first time. It would also help if I put you over the stream too. Yeah, that helps. So, um, how's things going over there on Twitter? It's kind of quiet, except for uh, Bert L. <laughs> Bert L. Bar- yeah, Bart's Bart's Bart L. Bart, Bart's an acquired taste. Bart L. Yeah. But uh, he's he's a big supporter of the show, so. You know, if if he sends you nude photos, just uh, just hit the little heart next to it, and mm-hmm. and then just move on. Of is the way that I can best recommend it. <laughs> but uh, thank you for for helping us out, and thank you for bringing the Twitter to life. Some great tweets already, I've noticed. No problem. And uh, hopefully, you won't be too scared when you go home to uh, after hearing the story, because I know some of the stuff does freak you out. It does, but I'm ready to hear more. All right. Well, let's get right back into it with Calvin Parker. And uh, we were talking before the break uh, about some of his experiences. Of course, he's one of the two people that were abducted in Pascagoula, Mississippi, back in 1973. And uh, he's joining us to tell us his story and to share with us exactly what went on. And, Calvin, we were talking about how uh, when you were taken, you were saying that these beings 
appear to be human humanoid in some of their um, appearance. But I thought I saw, too, that one of the – you had mentioned the female one. Was that the one that looked different than the other ones, the one that put her fingers in your throat? Was that the one that had a slightly different appearance than the other two? That, that's correct. She was more humanoid than uh, – the other two, I really feel like they were uh, robots or something. And she was commanding them, and they was probably there for her protection. It's really hard to say, but the way they moved, you know, was mechanical-like. And she just moved kind of like a normal person would, I guess. And is that mechanical movement, is that why you thought these were kind of robotic creatures at first? It is. And I still feel like that today. I've had a long time, as you know, to think about it and to try to put it all in perspective. And it's not a day in 45 years that I hadn't thought about it. So, you know, it still bothers me because I don't know what or who or where it came from or how what they wanted or their functions. I just always felt like I didn't need to talk about it, so I never did. So... I'm guessing, and of course this is just speculation on your part, but as you said, you've had so long to think about it. Maybe those two that were robotic were kind of just like the, almost like the, you know, the workers, the ones who were just, their job was to acquire you and to bring you on board, and then this person that you were talking to, this person that you dealt with, person, this being that you, you dealt with is actually the one that was kind of running the show. I, I really believe that. Uh, and I call it a she, I don't know why, you know, kind of, when a man's around a woman, he can sense it. And when a woman's around a man, she can sense that. And mm-hmm. I just sensed that it was a she. But I don't have any physical evidence that it was. But I do feel like she was pulling the strings for the big, I call it the big ugly creatures, the robots. Because they was listening, uh, somehow listening to their, her demands. So you said that when you came back, you know, it, it took it took a, a little while, but you ended up going to the sheriff's department. And I know that uh, you and, and Charlie Hickson were both, um, you know, questioned and uh, and you were held in. They had you in an interrogation room, right, where they could go over the story with you. Yes, sir, that's correct. And what was that experience like? Well, it was scary because. <laughs> They did it. They tried to push every button they could at the time, but they had done figured out we're not drinking. And they went went as far as saying, look, if this is a hoax, you're going to jail for a long time. Well, I've never been around a police department or a jail. I didn't know they couldn't really do much to you. Back in, I, I just took them for the word. So, you know, it was scary to me. I don't know about Charlie. But to you, I mean, uh, you know, some of the, I know some of the law enforcement that were involved said that you were kind of climbing the walls a bit being in that room, that that you were actually uh, very reluctant to be part of that. But that, did, did Charlie seem to be, I don't want to use the phrase, you know, eating it up, but was he kind of reveling in the fact that there was this much interest in what happened? I think Charlie, uh, well, you know, he was a good deal older, so he could handle things a little better. But uh, this didn't seem to bother Charlie because I remember before we left, I told the sheriff, I said, oh, 
please don't tell anybody this happened. I don't want to know it. I'm fixing to get married in a month. I just got a new job, and I just don't want nobody to know about this. I feel like there's nothing we need to talk about. Because I wasn't the one that called the sheriff's department to start with, so mm-hmm. I thought we were safe from gossip. Now, how they found out, I don't know. But back then, I think people had scanners, and they were really nosy, and they'd listen in to the police department and the fire department see what was going on. And I feel like that's how they uh, found out about it. Uh but I knew Charlie had called him and told him. So, you know, right away, I just kind of pulled away from Charlie because that wasn't the deal we had. Now, you had, you had mentioned uh, in the last hour that you weren't familiar with the idea of aliens. And I, I think just to put this in perspective, you know, we had the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case that happened in New Hampshire. Uh, that was in about 19. 10 years 1963. So 10, 10 years, years prior to this. But that was also something that it took a long time for that to really kind of... It really didn't become uh, prevalent in knowledge until the late 60s, 67, 68. And even then, it wasn't at some sort of a, a global scale, like uh, like a, one of these stories would be today. So you really, if you had no idea or any basis in that, when did the word aliens first come up? When did somebody first put that forth as a possibility? Well, actually, uh, talking about Betty and Barney Hill, Charlie was going on the uh, Phil Donahue, not Phil Donahue, Johnny Carson show or something, invited me to go. He said, there's going to be people there. This is the first I've heard of alien type thing. So he said, uh, Betty and Barney Hill's going to be there, and they got abducted by aliens. So that was the first I heard about that. And I got to researching a little bit then, and I found out that Betty and Barney was a mixed couple, mm-hmm. and this was back in the 60s, and it, he had passed away, but if she was willing to talk about that, and her in a mixed marriage back then, putting a lot of uh, pressure on herself, I kind of believed her to start with. Right. So I made a trip just to meet her to Chicago, just to meet Betty Hill. And I ended up spending uh, three or four days with her at her house and, and talking to her about it. And that's really the first conversation I had about aliens. Wow. Uh, yeah. So what was that conversation like? I mean, was it were you having a lot of similarities in your experiences, or, or was it different experiences for each of you? No, it was completely different. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, they didn't, never did remember actually seeing them until they was hypnotized. And then uh, she even showed me a star map she drawed after that. It turned out to be pretty accurate. Now, I don't know how accurate it was, because I'm not a scientist or anything. But uh, by the time I left, I don't know what happened to them, but I believe that something did happen to them. And that was my first time being around uh, any kind of abductee or anything like that. Of course, since the books come out, I've talked to hundreds of them. Well, I, I definitely want to get more into the kind of the media tour that, that Charlie went on uh, after this, but just taking a step back to when you were sharing these experiences with, with the local authorities, um, you did you both submit to polygraph testing? 
We did. I actually uh, took a polygraph test in Chicago, and back then, I had a polygraph test, a voice stress test, and some other kind of test. It just came out with clear colors through all of them. And then I told them, somebody come up wanted to do another one. I said, look, I've been through all this. Why? I know I'm telling the truth. And the next thing, I don't care if you believe me or not. And that's always the attitude I had. So it don't matter to me if I take a polygraph test or not. Because even with all the tests known to man like that, you know, there's going to be people that doubt you. And that's their, that's their business. I don't care if they don't believe me or not. Well, and, and Charlie so, took one too, though, and, and he also passed. He did pass. But didn't but, didn't somebody try to discredit the polygraph later? They did on Charlie, uh, and I don't know why. One thing, Charlie went after the into the spotlight. He he had his five minutes of fame, and I don't know what the man was thinking. He'd been better off, you know. Charlie died a poor man, just like I am right now. But he'd been better off not to talk about it and get all into this and do all this traveling. So I don't know what was on his mind because. When I left the coast, I didn't see Charlie but a couple times more. And I didn't want to talk to him because he always wanted to talk about this. And I just crammed up not talk to him about it. Is, it. is it true that if people recognized you, that sometimes you actually had to leave jobs as a result of people you know, realizing you were one of the Pascagoula abductees? Well, it was so heavy in the media then. Now, even though I never talked about it, but uh, I would be on a job, and sometimes the press would come out, and they'd want questions and answers and all that. And I gave one little interview to a local station. And by the time I was through with it, he had it so blown out of proportion that it was unbelievable. And I didn't want that. So I just quit talking about it, quit seeing the press. And, yeah, all through these years, it, like I say, even 45 years later, after I signed that register at that weight, people recognized my name and seen who I was. And actually, I left the Gulf Coast and I moved along Mississippi. But I moved back to the coast and I found a neighborhood where I had good neighbors. If somebody came out hunting me, they wouldn't tell them who I was. I never really used my real name around people and all. Even though these people knew who I was, and the last few jobs I had, you know, nobody wanted, nobody asked me any questions. And but is, that's why I felt, felt like I needed to write the book to let them know. And what's funny is, uh, you know, there's a lot of references, especially in the original reporting on this incident, on the Pascagoula incident, that there were two bridges uh, very nearby where you guys were fishing, and both of those bridges had tenders. There were people that were working on those bridges at the time and that they didn't see anything. But yet there were other people that reported seeing lights in the sky and seeing craft. There there were other reports that came in from others that kind of backed up what it was that you and Charlie encountered. Yeah. Here lately, there's been a lot of eyewitnesses came out. But on the bridges, the sheriff's department went, on Highway 90 to investigate that bridge there. Well, all he did when a ship would come, they'd radio and hit over the bridge and close it. 
he was sitting with his back in a recliner with his back to the river and just so he could kind of stop watching a little TV and all. Uh, he uh, was asleep when they got there. They had to wake him up to talk to him. And then the other bridge tender, they would come down when it was time for a, a train to come. So they knew the schedule, and they would come down to open the bridge up or close it. But it stayed open most all the time. Now, somebody from the Rolling Stones magazine asked, well, they had cameras everywhere. No. I told him, I said, you're an idiot because this was 73. You didn't have cameras out shining everywhere back then. Mm -hmm. you didn't, we didn't even have cell phones so we could call. So, uh, you know, it's a way difference in the time there and the uh, communications and things that was put out. I wish you had been cameras there. Well, I mean, it makes sense for the for the bridge tenders to say that they didn't see it because if they, first of all, if they had been looking, uh, they would have to be able to corroborate what it was that you saw. And so it couldn't just be them describing something. They had to be able to give the same story that you did. So it's easier to say that they didn't see anything than to admit I wasn't looking. I wasn't doing my job that I was supposed to be doing. I was goofing off. So uh, it's, it's kind of understandable that they would say that. But to have other people... Uh, that were in other parts of the area that were able to back you up. I'm sure that was um, reassuring to you and, and Charlie to know that other people saw some, even though they didn't have the same experience that you did, they still could say that there was something that happened that night. Right. And, you know, it was everything from uh, uh, preachers to uh, a parole officer, and it just goes on and on and on. And now that we're coming out, you know, I, I did, went to a book signing, and it was uh, people that came out in the book signing said, well, you know, look, my mom and dad was there, and they seen something, and they told us about it, but they never come forward with it. And, you know, they just passed away. So, and then there's been eyewitnesses that was there that night across the river on Chico Street. That's coming out right now. And we just heard from another one today. I mean, they just coming out making comments on his blog. And Philip, uh, the publisher, looks them up. He gets down to the truth. I mean, he's one that would discredit you if he thinks you're not telling the truth. And since we've been working together on this, I think it's no doubt in his mind that this happened. He's hunted all kind of witnesses trying to... Maybe not to discredit it, but trying to find out the truth about all this. You know, he's the one that brought out that alien autopsy at Roswell as a hoax. Okay, yep. Him. Well, so, I mean, that certainly got a lot of attention from people, but I, I think, you know, most people kind of knew it was a hoax to begin with, right? Oh, oh yeah, most people do. But what I'm getting at, he is the type person. If he thought I was trying to pull over a hoax or uh, lying about something, he'd call me out on it in a minute. He just wants facts, and, and I'm, I'm proud of him for that. Like when we agreed to do the book, uh, I said, you know, Philip, I'm not educated. I don't have anything in literature. I don't know how to write a book. I can't spell my name most of the time. But... Here's what I, I want for my part. And if we're going to do a contract or something, 
I don't want none of my words changed. I don't want no spelling corrected. I don't want no period of question marks put in where I didn't put them. I want my words on there. I don't want nobody editing nothing I got because they've done that all my life. You know, try to look around. And he stood by his words. He didn't edit. He took a lot of ridicule on some of the way that I worded things. And it's not him. It was me. That was the only way I would do a book. Well, I, I do have to say, Calvin, as an editor myself, that makes my back itch a little bit uh, to think about that kind of an agreement. But I understand your point. You know, you want to make sure that nobody is interfering with your story at all. And I think what's made people really sit up and take notice to your story is the fact that you, you know, you don't really discount the things that Charlie Hickson said as a result of, of what went on. You're talking about the same incidents and, and the same facts. And when... I guess from a from a, a cynical point of view, if you really wanted to make a splash with this story, you know you would you would be telling the story differently. If you were trying to do this for attention, if you were trying to do this for for money or for whatever reason, you would say you know the story that you've been told isn't the truth, and I have the truth, so that everybody pays attention to it. But really, what you're sharing is the truth because it it does coincide with what he was saying. Well, I've had people sit down and say, look. This is like sitting in the living room with you and you telling us a story. Now, I have a southern swing, I have an accent, and uh, probably don't speak the same language as a lot of people. That's like from the U.K. where the book is published, we don't speak the same English as they do right here. He has to question me on some of the things that I say, what mm-hmm. it means. And when I'm on... Uh, uh, a show or something in the UK. Hey, some of them I can't understand. But it's the same way here. We have a, like a Cajun French, and then we have that Southern deal, and the Yankees, you know, they all, we all speak different languages, but we understand. Anybody can look a man in the eyes and tell if he's telling the truth. And I don't have to defend myself or credit myself, because like I said before, Somebody don't want to believe me, that's fine. If somebody wants to hear what happened, I'll tell them the best of my knowledge what it is. Uh, I don't have no reason to make up stories. I've got my living made. And uh, that's why one reason that I waited till I retired and my living was made until I was on my deathbed that I wanted to tell this story. One of the aspects of your story, too, that is uh, kind of something that has become part of alien abduction lore now is your case was one of the first cases to report this this probing, this examination, uh, this, you know, this kind of wandering eye that, that overlooked you and, and Charlie. And that's something that, ha- of course, that went a whole different route with Whitley Strieber. But that's something that I think, um, you know, probably takes some some courage on your part to, to tell, to say that, you know, you were poked and prodded like that as opposed to just having a, a cursory examination. And that's something that we hear more and more people uh, report. It, was it as bad as some of these reports that we hear now, or was it kind of the way that you've described it at face value that you were kind of just looked over? Well, it was pretty bad. I mean, uh, there at one or two times, I thought maybe, you know, that was, don't be the end of it. I figured they was there to kill me. And, uh, you really didn't know what they was going to do next. 
And that was the scary part, what's next and why me. And I had figured that out to the day, why me. But, yeah, it was really scary. I mean, we're not, we're not talking about anything. How do I put this delicately? We're, I mean, you weren't violated by this probe. No, uh uh-uh. Okay. No, it, you know, it wasn't that kind of probe. It was, uh, I felt more like a medical exam than a, you know, a violation. Although it was, I felt like a crime because they took you against your will. That's kind of like you sitting in your living room. Somebody comes in there and grabs you out of your chair, takes you out there to the van, uh, van and throws you in there and runs a finger down your throat, you know. Any way you look at it, that's a crime. Right. But, I mean, it's not as bad as some of the other reports that we've heard, but still very traumatizing, I'm sure. Did that, was there any lingering effect for you afterwards? Uh, you know, we, we, you, you were telling us how you were worried about radiation and you went through that process of pouring bleach on yourself and all of that, but was there any kind of lingering effect that happened in even something that, you know, you just, uh, maybe like a little bit of a freak out if, if somebody touched you or, or being alone kind of weirded you out. Was there any, any after effects from what happened? Well, I would say the only after effect I really had is trying to figure out what did happen. And, and that lingers with you. You know, like I say, you get into why or why me or who are they? I would feel a lot better just knowing uh, where they was from or who they were or, while they was here. And, and then, if you remember back when Austin Wells had his radio show and he just did a fake evasion on uh, the alien evasion there, it turned the world upside down. And that is one reason I didn't want to uh, come forward too. I didn't want to cause a big panic and all. But nowadays, you know, everybody's talking about it now. It's all over the History Channel now. Well, and that's speaking of the History Channel, that's that's something that I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about Jay Allen Hynek and your experiences with him. You talked a little bit about that, about him coming to investigate your case. But what was your impression of Dr. Hynek when you met him? Dr. Hynek, as I might say down here, it was as serious as a heart attack. He wanted facts. He wanted evidence. He just wanted the truth, and he want, that's all he wanted. He didn't exaggerate nothing. He didn't add to it. He didn't take nothing away. He was a very serious man. So, you know, I'm glad somebody like him was down instead of, uh, you know, some somebody out in the wild mm-hmm. that just gets off in left field. And he bought Dr. Harder with him which Dr. Harder was the same way. They were fat-turning when they came down. And his final statement was, I believe something did happen to them uh, because of their actions, but if it wasn't, they should be in Hollywood because they're the best actors I've ever seen. Hmm. And that's something kind of like along the lines of what the sheriff said too, right? Didn't he say that... um didn't he initially say that he believed your story, but then said that he believed that you believe the story? Didn't he kind of take that, that step backwards a little bit? Yeah. He, you know, he's a politician. He had to take a step back. 
But uh, originally, when it first came out, when the news media got a hold of it, he said he, he had no doubt that this happened to us. And then later on, he said he had no doubt that something happened to us, that we believed what happened to us. So, you know, he wasn't taken away, but he was walking on coal right there, you know, trying to... Because that would destroy, I could see how a story like that would destroy a politician. Sure. If uh, he was coming out with something like that. Especially when you have, you know, Charlie's going on uh, Johnny Carson and going on Dick Cavett and talking about this in a way where it may be, you know, it may be changing the outside world's uh, the way that they view your community. You know, they're, they're looking at this as being, you know, look at what happened with Roswell where... Nobody can talk about Roswell without referencing the Roswell crash, and and the same right. with Pascagoula, where people will this will become something that becomes the identity of the location. Well, actually, Charlie irritated me by going out and talking about all this because he made something believable about halfway unbelievable because he would come in and I noticed through the years, like I say, I didn't talk to him much. But he had told somebody that he had a little rock and he'd rub it and they'd come back and see him and all that. I didn't believe that. But, uh, you know, that that's just some of the stuff that was said. Then he'd make predictions of what was going to happen. And you know how somebody would make a prediction and then it never happened. So, you know, I felt like he was taken away from the credibility of what did happen. So there's there was... And an exaggeration to the story, it almost felt like like Charlie needed to keep giving the media more to stay in the public eye. I feel like it's, I feel that's I, that's the way that I feel, but I don't know. You know, I don't know if we can rub a rock or not. But like I said, when I told Philip, "Look, I'll write this book. I'm gonna make the uh, what they call the circuit, all these conferences." For one year, October, when this is over with, when my year's up, this fat boy's fixing to go on a, uh, move on his houseboat and go off grid. There ain't nobody going to know where I am or be able to call me or communicate with me or nothing else. But I did tell him that if he needed me, like if something come forward or maybe some kind of, uh, little something there that he might need me, I would come out for him. He will know how to get a hold of me. I guess what I'm saying, this is my last year of these conferences and all. This this will be? You're, you're, you're done after this year? I'm done after this year. Unless Philip wants to need me for some re- unknown reason that comes up. Maybe we under a contract or something like that. We've had people ask about movie rights. We had settled on none because I don't want to publicize this too much. But if we do get someone that will do us right on one, you know, I would help on that. I would go on past the year. And what I'm talking about on these conferences and all these, you got people that make just go to them every year. I mean, uh, it's just second nature for them. The same people do the same conferences. Like Travis Walton, he's made every conference. Uh, for since this has happened to him every year, 
like Charlie Hicks, and he had made every conference like this happen to him every year. And there's more and more out there. And I just, I just don't want to keep reliving all this and going through it. I, I just want to, I just want to point out here, and and sir, you can tell me if I'm overstepping here a little bit, but I want to point that out for the listeners because I think that that's important to take away. That basically what we're saying is that Calvin Parker is leaving money on the table that he would have the opportunity to go out there and go to these conventions and speak about this, and you could make you know, uh, a pretty good sum of money to go spend a weekend at all these different conferences where you would be loved and adored by the attendees and you would sell tons of books and get to sign autographs and all that, and you're saying that you're going to leave all that on the table because you don't want to talk about this incident anymore. No, that's it. I give it a year with uh, Philip. And like I say, uh, I'm not going to do the conferences, but if he needs me, if we're under contract for something, in which I have several contracts for conferences this year, but the last one's in October. But if we happen to get under contract uh, for a little something else, and there's no money in this, in this book or nothing, really, uh, I would come out for Philip if he asked me to. But I'm not planning on making a living doing this because I could care less about traveling. I got one thing on my mind, and that's to enjoy my retirement. I bought a houseboat. I'm redoing it. And I, I love fishing, and that's the way I'm going to spend my time. It's going to cost me money fishing. That's how you got into all this trouble in the first place was fishing. <laughs> Hey, Calvin, may I ask you a question, or a favor, actually? Yes. Now, I know you said you're not going to do anything after October. I help run right. I help run a, a conference called Experiencers Speak. It's all people that have been abducted and people that help support people that have been abducted. And we'd like to actually have you next year. Will you make that one exception? Let me think about it. I, yeah, I possibly would, uh, as long as it's not over a couple of days, two or three days. No, it's usually a two-day event. But uh, all these conferences I've done this year, I won't be back to them. My one thing is to uh, go to the U.K. to meet Philip, and I'm going to do a conference there. Of course, we got the mega conference coming up. The one in Arizona, the Ozark Mountains, and uh, there's one more I'm going to, uh, Texas, Engelberg, Texas. And I'm on contract for them, and I'm going to fill my contract on all them. But uh, I'll never make the same conference twice, I don't think. That's, that's understandable. Now, one of the things that happens, and we've discussed this a lot on the show with Moniz uh, in particular, but also with other guests who have been abductees is that once you have this initial experience other weird things will happen and i know that you said that you tried to keep this you know quiet over the years but that it's also never far from your mind either has there been other strange and weird things that have happened to you in the ensuing years since this happened it has it was one more time and it's in my book oh I left going fishing one morning. I got where I went fishing now after this happened. This was in 93. I told my wife, I said, I'm going to Cat Island to do a little bit of fishing, and I'll be back before dark. I said, 
don't need to do nothing. I'm going to take a little water, fix me a little lunch. And uh, so I left and went out. Well, it was about, I don't know exactly what time it was, probably close to noon. I got my lunch out to eat it. And the next thing I knew, it was 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't, I didn't know where all this time went. I missed all this time. I come to and my lunch was still there. So, uh, I went home. I got the boat left. It was dark then and, uh, started going home and I couldn't figure out where all my time had went. I didn't know how to explain it. So there was a friend of mine said that, uh, look, there's a Bud Hopkins that wrote a book on missing time. Let me find out where he is, because that's what you got, and let's go see him. Well, he hunted for him, and he found him in, I guess, a conference in Tampa, Florida. And he talked me into getting in the car and going down there to see uh, Bud Hopkins. And I didn't figure Bud would know who I was from anybody, but I knew I wasn't going in that conference that he was in and go talk to him myself. So I told my friend, I said, go in there and see if he'll talk to me. I want to talk to this man. I didn't know, I didn't know Bud from anybody. Of course, Bud remembered my name. He knew who I was. He said, yeah, I'll be back at my motel in 45 minutes. Tell him I'll meet him. So we went to his motel and Bud came in and, uh, we sat there and talked for a little while and he said, uh, Calvin, I'd love to hypnotize you. Will you agree to that? I said, well, I don't know anything about that. I said, here's how I agree with it. Is this friend of mine's in the same room, and you don't put stuff into my head. And I said, he's going to be holding a ball bat on you. And if you put something in my head that don't belong there, he's going to beat you with that ball bat, and I'll take the blame for it. But I was just telling him how strong I was about that. So we agreed to it. Well, I never thought he hypnotized me. When we was doing the book, uh, that little while we was doing the book, I mentioned to uh, Philip that I had talked to uh, Bud Hopkins. And, uh, And he tried to hypnotize me. So Philip got on a quest saying, of course, Bud Hopkins was dead. He called Dr. Uh, I think Dr. Jacobs took over Bud Hopkins' file. So he called Dr. Jacobs and got the original tape where he was supposed to hypnotize me. Well, when it come in, I was still working on the book. I was putting together the book, and Philip was putting together all this other information. I started kind of reading over it, and I, I went out to the porch. I told my wife, I was really hypnotized. I didn't believe it. I was hypnotized, and it lasted probably an hour and a half. I never did read all the transcripts, but uh, still had to this day. But but that was shocking to me to be to find out I was hypnotized. What about any other weird things that have happened? I mean, we've we've talked about abductees having uh, poltergeist experiences after that. Any any kind of just general weirdness like that? Not that I really know of. Now, the year that Kennedy died or was assassinated, we used to share a room 
in a house, my brother and I, because we lived in a small house. And we shared a room. Now, he hollered out one night and said, there's a goat blowing in your ear. And I didn't realize it, but it, he was convinced. I even asked him about it later on in life before he passed away. So that's the only other thing I could think of. Now, I've, oh, sorry, go ahead. I've talked to people that said they've been multiply abducted and all this and visited every day and had nine or ten babies by aliens. You know, I just feel to do a lot of that. Some people I believe and some I have, I don't believe. It's one of the deals they got to show me. So with all of these, uh, you know, conventions that you've been to and and sharing the story and writing the book and putting all of this out there, there's been nothing that has come about from that? I mean, nobody's kind of uh, come forward and, and told you to stop talking about it? Nobody's ever given you any trouble about sharing your story? No, sir, not at all. <laughs> now, the conventions, my conventions don't start till the end of March. I'm going to that mega convention in Laughlin, Nevada. But uh, I've done quite a few book signings and all. And people are just fascinated. They sit there, they starstruck by what's going on. They want to know. And I think a lot of this now is attention on the History Channel, H and Alien, and all that. Mm-hmm. I, I watch some of them shows, and I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know how I feel about them. And I did a deal for the Tribal Channel that's coming up, and. Uh, Got to meet some of the people. They they doing all some on abductees and all. And I got to meet some of them. Some of them's really believable, but you know, some of them not so much. But I'm not calling them a liar or anything. I'm not, not saying it didn't happen. All I'm saying, I would just need more proof to really believe them. Well, I mean, what would you say to people that still would make that same statement to you? That people would say. You know, take another lie detector. Uh, you know, stand up and 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 you know, give us more facts. There's there's got to be people that are calling you out for sharing this and, and saying that. Um, you know, especially staying silent for all these years, it's probably raised a lot of people's haunches that you're sharing the story now. Even though it's, you know, you're telling us that there's no ulterior motive behind it. You know, that people will always be skeptical or, or, or cynical when you do come out with your story. Yeah, and you see a few people like it. And you go on Facebook, you see a little, little comments like that, and I understand it. I don't hold that against them. Actually, when I was going to do the book, before I started, I had uh, hunted someone that could uh, give me a really good lie detector test. And I was going to do that, but I found out it cost too much money for me to pay for it on my own. And I wasn't going to waste my money with it. I said, hell, I'll just tell my story. And uh, if they want to believe it, they can. They don't. I don't care they don't. If they want to know more about it, they can read the book. So, I mean, that's – I was going to say, that's something that we should point out. The first lie detector was actually uh, was actually paid for by the sheriff's office, right? Right. So any subsequent ones so, like that, any any subsequent ones after that would have had to have come out of your own pocket. Yes, sir. And, and they are high dollar. Like I say, I was looking into doing one before I did the book, and I actually went to uh, the sheriff's department down here, 
and ask them who does their lie detector test. Now, I lived on a, I lived on a fixed income after I retired, and coming out of your pocket with a large sum of money like that, to me that's a large sum. Uh, if you get a good one and somebody believable, that's taken away from my fishing and, and what I like to do, and I'm, I'm just not going to do it to convince myself that I'm telling the truth. So I took the attitude that if people want to believe me, that's fine, and they don't, that's fine. Well, I mean, also, too, like, everybody's going to pick that apart anyway. So even if you pass right. a, another lie detector, they're going to say, well, those are flawed, or sure, he passed because he believes his story, but it doesn't mean that it's true. You know, there's always going to be people that will pick that apart. So, yeah, like you said, it's 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 almost like it's a waste of money at this point because it's not going to change anybody's mind. No, it, it won't. It won't help. I want the way this is, the people that believe you believe you 100%, and the people that don't, you never convince him that it's going that it happened. So, you know that that's just life. That's human nature. So, in in sharing the story now and in putting it out there and, and writing the book, what are you hoping that people take away from you sharing your story? Well, you know, <laughs> the only reason I wanted to share it, anyhow, out of forty five years, I never even talked to my wife about it. Never told her the story, never mentioned it and all. And then never talked to my friends or the people that I work with. Never talked to the people that live on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. They all wondered where I walked. I just faded out into the sunset. Well, I figured this book would explain it to the people that I hadn't told the story to. And I wouldn't have to just sit up and tell it to everybody that I've seen. So what I do now... I said, buy the book, read it. You can't afford it, I'll pay for it. Well, and there yeah. might be some people that take you up on that, so be careful with that offer. But, yeah, that's the other thing. I think people make the mistake of thinking that when you write a book, you know, it's it's a it's a blank check, and it's it's not. You're lucky if you can make a dollar off every book that you sell. Yeah, you uh, there's no money in writing books, you know. And when I said I'd pay for it literally, that ain't for everybody out there in Radio Land, but like to my family and a few close friends. Yeah. You know, I give a books. Uh, but as far as making money, you know, it's, it's no money in this. I make a lot more money working and staying home. It, it actually has cost me money doing this because I mail a book out to somebody and the postage on it, you know, cost money uh, it, it's just I just can't see a whole lot of money being made in it I made a lot more money working but that being said if and people oh, oh sorry go ahead and you don't spend none if you retire and fishing you know just for making ice and I got an <laughs> ice machine so <laughs> there you go and so uh, if people do want to pick up the book, uh, of course, it's called Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, My Story by Calvin Parker. And uh, and people can pick it up on, on Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble and other places where they sell books online, right? Yes, sir. Well, Calvin, I want to thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story. Uh, as I said, you know, it's it's one of the ones that is kind of in the pantheon of UFO 
abduction cases, but I, I'm glad that we could really dig into it and, and kind of pick apart some of it and, and really get a do a deep dive into your experiences. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing so much with us. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we get to cross paths before uh, before you're done with the convention circuit. And we get to go fishing. Yeah, I bet we do. Uh, somewhere after, I'm getting around this year, that's for sure. And and one final question. What do you fish for? What, what What's your favorite thing to fish for? I love fishing. I, I'm a sports fisherman. Uh, redfish, speckled trout, flounder. And then if the fresh water's in, I fish catfish and crappie and brim. Yes. Well, you know, we're in the uh, we're broadcasting from the number one fishing port in the world. So anytime you want to try some northeast fishing, come on up here and, and we'll show you a good time. Well, I might just take you up on that one day. Hey, you've got the houseboat, I, right? It's yes, sir. <laughs> you can come right on up. All right, yeah, just scoot on up. <laughs> I take my houseboat out to the uh, marsh and we stay out there three, or four, or five days at a time, just getting away, fishing, enjoying it. Life, you know, uh, got a big rocket chair on the front porch and sit out there and just look sometimes. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, sir. You have a great night, and uh, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. All right, take care. That is Calvin Parker. Again, you can pick up the book wherever books are sold. It's called Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter. Calvin Parker joining us tonight. Uh, a, a great discussion. I know Stephanie's freaked out by aliens. I think Kylie's freaked out by aliens. Moni's freaks out the aliens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that we, we, we did a, a good job of, uh, hope, uh, hopefully a good job of really getting deep into that story. And, and it's, again, as with anything, it's for you, the audience, to take away and decide what it is uh, that you are willing to believe. And next week we're going to talk more uh, with, uh, we'll have Michael Lee Hill on to talk about the Anunnaki, and we'll talk about just all, of, all of his stuff. Yeah. Some of the, the strange things that go along with that as well. If you want to reach out to us at any time during the week, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com is our email address. You can also follow us on Facebook. You can like us on Twitter. Right? Did I do that right? No, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. All those different ways that you can reach out to us and get in touch with us. And uh, we welcome it. We welcome all your questions, all of your thoughts and comments, especially if you want to subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can leave comments there. Some of them are not nice, but some of them are pretty good. And so we welcome your feedback in any way that you want to provide it. Tell your friends, share the word, spread the spooky word about the show, because this is why we do it. We don't do it for ourselves. We do it for you. We do it to bring you all of these strange and weird topics and to feel like you have an outlet and a community where you can come and talk about these things and not be judged. That being said, if you don't come to the show on Saturday nights and jump in the chat room live, we will judge you. What's wrong with you? What else are you doing on a Saturday night? Nothing. So uh, we will talk to you next week. Until then, for Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, for Kylie, I'm Tim. Stay spooktacular.